I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Having a 37-year-old in Cincinnati. And all the only thing else I got to say is, how about them Cowboys? Yeah! Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up to the layup. Oh, blocked by James. Episode 49 of the DNC Podcast, Monday edition. Dustin, what an incredible weekend. Definitely tough for both of us being Patriots and Cowboys fans. But we got the World Series last night. It was a great game. I've been really impressed by the series. I, I said something to you yesterday via text. I said, this is so good for baseball. This has been an incredible, not just World Series, but it's really been a great postseason. And last night was a lot of fun. What, do you, what did you think about the game? What did you think about you know the NFL, which I know we'll get into later? But um, how did you feel overall about sports this weekend? College football? Yeah, last night, to be honest, the first thing that went through my head after the World Series was I genuinely feel good for Clayton Kershaw. Now, I like to point fun yeah. at the Dodgers, mainly because I have so many friends being in California that are big Dodgers fans, and they've underachieved massively like the past five years. So it's fun to poke fun and tease people. But Clayton seems like such a genuine guy who has historically kind of struggled in the biggest moments of his career versus the Nationals last year, multiple spots in the World Series. So for him to have two really good starts in multiple games, you just feel good for him. I mean, I watching that post-game conference yesterday with his kids and him just talking about the array of emotions from being in bad situations where he's cost his team wins and then to be a part of them actually winning a, a decisive game three in a seven-game series, I just felt really good for him. Yeah, actually, here's kind of a cool, I guess, you know, uh, personal story about him. So he he's a part of – like part of his charity, him and his wife – in LA, they they're a part. Of, have you heard of the Dream Center? Um, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So they every strikeout that Clayton gets, he donates a thousand dollars to the Dream Center. And you know, during COVID and stuff, it's been you know, it's really been one of the the big pillars in that community in LA. And so he's just an overall great person, and he really is one of, if not the best pitcher of his generation. So it's just been tough to watch him over the years in the playoffs, but. What's cool is this year he's four and one in this entire postseason. I feel like, you know, in sports, when you get further away, like once he retires and it's like 10, 15 years after his career, I feel like people, as long as they get this World Series and he probably he probably won't pitch again. Maybe if it goes to a game seven, then he might come in as, as a reliever. But 10, 15 years after he retires, people aren't really going to talk a ton about the bad or the negative of his career, as long as he can get this world series. And, you know, I think even like with, with Michael Jordan, I think we've all experienced that with the last dance and people forgetting that the first seven years of Michael Jordan's career was tough before he got Pippen. And so I don't know, I'm just super happy for him as well, even though I'm not a Dodgers fan, but he's just such a, like, you can't not like Clayton Kershaw. And I feel like all the negativity and the flack that he's received, he's just been a class act during that whole, that whole deal. But I like the Rays in game six. I like the match between Blake Snell. He's going up against Tony Gonsolin. So I like that for the Rays. I've been impressed the last two games with their offense. It's something that going into the series I was super concerned with. Glasnow did not pitch good last night. And, you know, the thing you and I both agreed upon a few podcasts back was that before the World Series started, that the Rays frontline starters could not get down early and glass now did and so normally the rays win because they hit home runs and they you know they weren't able to do that last night and there was a couple innings i think it was i want to say the the fifth the rays had runners on first and third with no outs and they didn't get a single run and so they had a few innings where they had opportunities so i feel confident going into game six because i like i like what blake snell did in game two and uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like the Rays are done? Do you feel like this game um, you know, kind of put the fork in them? I think they still have a, a chance. I think they need more of a dominant game from Blake Snow in Game 6. Now, he played, he pitched well in Game 2, but I don't even think he got past either the 5th inning, or the 4th or the 5th, right? He didn't go at least 6 Yeah, it was like 4th or 5th, yeah. For them, if they can get 6 or 7 out of him ideally, that would be really, really helpful just because it'll give them so much more opportunity in the bullpen in a game seven because it yeah. looks like the Dodgers are going to probably pull out Walker Bueller if they make it to a game seven and you're probably going to get six from him. And he was so dominant his start. I'm still don't hundred percent get why even off somewhat short rest, he's not pitching game six. 
it, it just doesn't make sense to me. The Dave Roberts piece of this World Series, I think I text you and you can't fire a manager if you win a World Series, but I, he's made so many questionable calls in the World Series, yes. primarily yep. in their losses. I don't get it. Like At least he learned to not put Kenley Jansen back in last night. I thought he was going to pull that again. That's true. I don't get how Clayton gets more grief than Jansen because he's had so many of these spots where you're like, dude, just getting out. Like you're getting paid all this job. money. You know, you get, you're considered one of the best relievers in baseball. Like just get the out. But no, I totally agree. But he just made so many crucial poor decisions in all of their losses. It just doesn't make sense to me where if they lose this World Series, they have to fire him. Like, there's no way they bring him no, back if the Rays find a way to win game six yeah, and game agreed. seven, 100%. right? And the other interesting thing about the Dodgers is they've hit nine home runs from nine different players. Like, their pitching staff has been great, but offensively, they've had so many different players step up. Where from the Rays, it's kind of been a two-man show. And so they definitely need to get up early, I think, in game six. If they can get up maybe 2-0 game six and they can get six you know, six solid innings from Brake Snell. I think they definitely have a shot, but it's going to be a tough one unless they can kind of slow down the bats from the Dodgers. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I do think that the Rays bullpen has pitched really well in the World Series. So I think for me, I agree with that point, but I would say maybe a more important aspect is that they don't get down early. If the, if the Dodgers jump on them again for, you know, two, three runs in the first inning, that's where I feel like the Rays just don't quite have the offense to dig themselves out of that hole. They did show that in game four, which was an instant classic, but that's the thing that concerns me. So yes, Snell needs to go, you know, five, six innings, but Snell needs to also not give up three, four runs in his, however many innings he, he pitches. Um, so we'll have to see game, game two is coming up on Tuesday, but coming up on the pod today, we are going to get into week seven of the NFL season. We're going to recap some of the games. But before we do so, as always, as we do every single week, we're going to get into the pick of the day. Oh, and we actually also have a DC inbox this week, so that'll be super fun. So I'm going to talk real quick about the Dallas Cowboys, my beloved Dallas Cowboys. Still beloved. Still beloved um, because I'm a fan and I'm loyal. But uh, this might be the worst team we've had in probably the last decade. Player personnel-wise, no, but absolute – just lack of of heart, lack of desire. That's what's tough for me. I'm okay. Well, I'm not okay with it. But if we're gonna lose, like if we're just a bad football team, like the Jets or the or the Jaguars, then I'm like, okay, well, we're a bad football team. We don't have a a, a great personnel. We need to get better as a football squad. But there's some there's some things to at least be positive about. There's there's not much for me to be positive about right now. And the crazy thing is it seems like the Jets are giving more to Adam Gase than the Cowboys players are giving to McCarthy, which is absolutely crazy because no, maybe true. they're playing it's they know true. they're playing for the next head coach where the Cowboys players are trying to riot and get the next head coach fired because McCarthy has a few more deals <laughs> a few more years on his contract, but I've never seen a team so obviously and openly via emotion and just lack of desire give up on a coach so early when you look at the division they're playing in the standings they still have a chance to make the playoffs and it looks like none of them want to be there on the football field if you're jerry do you fire mccarthy after this year or do you even wait till the end of the year i told you if i was i told you if i was jerry i fired him last week like i, I eat the money <laughs> jerry's a what billionaire like eat the money dude you're, you're fine like you're gonna be okay <laughs> yeah I, I i was thinking yesterday as i'm watching the game as we're getting dismantled by the washington football team like they don't even have it they don't even have a name like that that to me big kyle allen game yeah I, it's that's what's tough i feel like because apparently the rumors are or the reports are that they're gonna stick with this name going into next year it's just when you lose to a team that doesn't have an actual like nickname they're just the like that'd be like saying the dallas football team you know, it's just – what do you say to that? Like you lose to a team with no name. Well, that's the meme I saw yesterday. It said that any team that loses to them needs to change their name to the city football team. So you don't need to now be the Dallas football team because if, if you lose to a team with no name, you don't deserve the right that's to have a true. name anymore. So, so my actual pick of the day is our team. So 
In the third quarter, Andy Dalton steps up in the pocket and scrambles and gives himself up for a slide. And John Bostick hits Andy Dalton super high. And it's obvious that he's giving himself up on the play. Andy Dalton's not really known as a scrambling quarterback. And the thing that really was disheartening for me was, and McCarthy actually talked about this post game, but there was nobody on our roster. Amari Cooper was right next to him that ran over to see if he was okay or got in Bostic's face. And in this sport that's really like a gladiator type sport, you you sort of you remember the game last year between the Browns and the Steelers where Miles Garrett hit Mason Rudolph over the head with his helmet. And you saw you saw Pouncey punch like swing at him. Like it was and that's not even their starting quarterback. That wasn't Ben Roethlisberger. Always protect your quarterback. You always do, right? And I don't care what your excuse is. Like, I don't care if Dak's your guy. I don't care if you're just in your own head. Like, woe is me. We're a bad team. Like, we're getting beat up by this this football team that people probably thought we would destroy. And that's like your teammate. That's like another man. That's his livelihood. That's his health. Like, he has a wife and kids. That's what was super disheartening for me as a fan to see that like watching it in real time and like literally as he's lying on the ground with no helmet, nobody's going to see if he's okay. Nobody's getting in Bostic's face. Like, so I think that showed you pointed this out, but I, it shows where that team's at mentally with McCarthy, because that to me, a lot of people say you take on the personality of your coach that showed how they feel about McCarthy. In my opinion. No, I a hundred percent agree. I think watching them play, the reason you guys were competitive in so many games is they were going after, they were living off of Dak's heart. And I think Dak's such a good leader. I think that's one of the characteristics yep. and one of the cases people are saying, well, just pay Dak $40 million a year because right. he elevates. And I've said that about him. I love those intangibles that he has. 100%. Yeah. I think he elevates his teammates from an emotional standpoint. Now, maybe not from an X's and O standpoint, like we've seen guys like Aaron Rodgers or Brady's or Breeze, but he's so driven and he leaves it all out on the battlefield for instance right so he just he motivates everybody and everybody thinks they have a chance to win where we've definitely seen Dalton doesn't bring that same fire to the field that you would say Dak does and neither does McCarthy and so you lose Dak who's your leader who gets the troops ready to go and you would assume that your head coach would step in or there would have been more of a 50-50 split right but now seeing how the teams reacted post the Dak injury, he was the guy in the locker room. It wasn't McCarthy. And th they've just given up. I mean, McCarthy had to I, – I understand the message he would have given to the team after the loss. But what he said at the press conference to me, if you have that locker room, that's what you say to your guys in the locker room. You don't say it to the media. Him saying that to the media after the game shows like, I've, I've lost the locker room. Very good I point. have to Very try to do point. something to either – Maybe I'm calling out their manhood so they come and give it more next week just selfishly for them, right? Not for me, but for them because that's normally something like you would do in a locker room. Like that's something you could see Pete Carroll saying to the Seahawks, but he's not saying that to the press. He's saying to his guys in the locker room. No, that's that's a that's an amazing point because if you see that from any coach say something negative about his football team, it doesn't always necessarily indicate – I do believe in this instance I think you're 100% on point – but it doesn't always indicate that they've lost the locker room, but it does indicate that there's some sort of gap between or connection, lack of connection between him and his, you know, the coach and the squad, because he's trying to get them riled up because if he says it to the media, now he's made it public, which could light a fire under some guys, right? It's either going to light some fire under them and motivate them to be better, or they're going to be mad, right? That their coach did that publicly. So. And it go. also depends like on where the team's at. Cause like, Belichick at times, right, has called out players publicly, but normally the team's, you know, five and two, right? And he has a winning pedigree, right? And so although you don't like your head coach calling you out on, you know, national TV in a press conference, you understand it because he's shown that he can win football games. But with McCarthy, now we have to give all of the Packers credit to, I think, Aaron Rodgers over what the past tenure they had, right? Or at least more of it, right? Less of a split. And then 
in the Cowboys situation, it's not like you guys are a you know a five win football team and had a really bad game. And in that instance, it may make sense to kind of call the guys out, but you have nothing to like. If I'm the Cowboys players, I'm like, all right, cool. You're calling out my manhood. Well, what about yours, bro? Yeah, no. And and the thing too, you have to look at it this way: is that there's it's sort of like a savings account as a head coach. The thing with Bill is Bill, for the most part, nine point nine out of ten times, he keeps stuff in house. Okay, so. Most of the time, players don't feel disrespected by him. But if he does speak out, then you know the severity of it. Because if he decided, because Bill hates the media. He hates doing press conferences. So if he in any way, shape, or form says anything about a player, whether it be positive or negative, you have to take it very seriously. Mike McCarthy hasn't earned that respect, not only in the league in general as head coach, but he definitely hasn't earned that yet as the Cowboys head coach. And so you have to have awareness as the head coach to go, is this the right time and place for me? Have I built up enough equity with my team to be able to say something like this? And he has it. So yeah, man, I totally agree. Um, So I'm going to move to my pick of the day. And it's going to come off of the report from ESPN that the NBA is reportedly looking at starting its season in December, uh, right before Christmas on the 22nd. And so my kind of thought process on this is, you know, I thought the bubble for the NBA was really good. It was really exciting. I also thought the timeline worked out really well where you had the championship right before like the heart of the NBA season, MLB playoffs. It was really good from a viewership standpoint. And I thought, okay, there's been talk historically that the NBA may look to shorten their season or kind of push back the start date to kind of be the main sport when they're playing because historically they started in late October around Halloween and that's kind of the heart of the NFL season. So me looking at them starting December 22nd, I'm like, ah, that's like week 15, right before the playoffs. Initially the idea was to start in February, right around Martin Luther King, like early February. And I'm like, I actually really like this because from a timing standpoint, the Super Bowl just got finished right a week prior. You don't have baseball for two or three months. You have everybody's attention and I'm a big NBA guy, right? And so I love watching the NBA, but I think because of, you know, the star power of LeBron James and because when he's playing well or the Lakers are playing or during basketball season, people talk about LeBron on first take, right? Or undisputed or on all these shows on ESPN. And so we feel like the NBA is magnified to say the level of the NFL. But when you look at viewership, it's not even close. So I think game four of the NBA Finals, there was 5 million viewers, which may sound like some all-time viewership if you don't kind of know how it works, but let me put it in perspective. The Thursday night football game between the Jets and the Broncos had 5 million viewers, and that was probably the worst football game played this year. And so when you look at... And nobody likes watching, most of the time, nobody likes watching Thursday night football. Nobody the, the games have been Thursday better. football. But it's bad usually. Yeah, 100%. And you're talking about two really bad teams. I think Drew Locke was injured at the time, right? So you're looking at a backup quarterback, and you're looking at the Jets, who are a backup football team, right? So you're basically looking at two JV squads on a Thursday Thursday night, right? And it's getting the same amount of viewership as the NBA Finals. And so I was kind of interested in seeing them start in in February. I thought – it may have been interesting to see if that's something they want to move forward on, but they've, it looks like they've made the decision to start in December. What are your thoughts on why you think they possibly went through doing that? Yeah, so I have two thoughts. One, I agree the NBA should actually start after the football season's over, or at least it be right around the time that the Super Bowl is happening. Because there's no reason to start your season when you're in the heart of the NFL season. There's just no reason for it. If you push your season to February, and I'm talking a normal season, right? So like going forward, this would be when their season begins. And then if, even if your season ran into late August, it's right before the NFL season starts. So and right before baseball playoffs normally. Exactly. So, you know, and I, I don't feel like baseball steals many view- viewers from the NBA. So I don't really see the conflict there. I would definitely rather go up against – Major League Baseball than the NFL. So from that standpoint, 100% agree. The other thing that I did see, though, was the NBA starting in, if they do start in December on the 22nd, rather than Martin Luther King Day, they are actually going to generate an extra $500 million in revenue. So we all know it is a business. Like, that's just the reality of sports. I don't know why people kind of say that. It's like a, oh, let's not talk about it. Like, it's, 
it's a negative thing. Like, no, it's, it's a business like anything else. Like if you own a business, you want to make money because if you don't, you're going out of business. So I don't have any issue talking about it. I have no issue with the NBA doing stuff or making decisions around the fact that they have to generate money. I have no issue with it. The Ryan Rosillo podcast where we had uh, Brian Windhorst on, who's uh, you know an M- NBA commentator analyst, and he said something really interesting. He said that the NBA could not survive this season without fans. So they couldn't be 100% on television product. And I think it goes to your point, the stat you brought up, which was really great. They need fans in the stands. They need that revenue to survive. And I think a lot of people don't think that way about the NBA because it's such a star-driven league. There's so many stars. People enjoy watching it. It's a fast-paced game. And so when I look at it from that standpoint, when, when, I, was, when I heard that, I was like, man, I knew baseball needed fans. I didn't know the NBA needed fans that much. Supposedly, he said it's somewhere around like for like the team like the Warriors, it's around like 60% of the revenue is fans. No, that was crazy to me. He was saying that I think he said the only team that could probably survive not having fans is the Lakers because they have their own TV network. But I know for the NFL, there's been articles that said a lot of the major teams actually get more money um, from people watching in just because of advertising on TV than necessarily fans at the games. Now, you want to have fans at the games because it's additional revenue. But, you know, if you have, you know, a national televised game and you have say 20 million people watching, you make so much money from that standpoint. I figured the NBA would be the same, but when you look at the numbers of people watching, there's so many less people watching the NBA than the NFL. That's another interesting thing because for a lot of states, like a lot of the regulations for stadiums, you're not going to know them until next year. I know California specifically, Gavin Newsom said, we're not having anybody go to any sporting events for all of 2020. And so you're starting your season knowing you can't have fans initially to start and you're not knowing how that's going to be in the following year. And so that's an interesting take when you look at a league that is so dependent on fans being able to come into their, their game. So week seven of the NFL season is in the books, except for tonight's game. There was a lot that happened, a lot of storylines, a lot of things to get into. So me and Dustin are super pumped about this. I'm going to go ahead and start talking about the Steelers. You and I both picked them to win the AFC North. I think a lot of people probably would have thought that was crazy. They didn't know how Ben was going to come back. It was a, a pretty big pretty big injury that he suffered last year in his throwing arm and his elbow. And even though the Titans came back in that game, I, there was for at least three quarters. You know, It's one of those games where the score doesn't indicate the dominance. The Steelers dominated that game from start to finish. And one of the things that you know, I feel like when we did the contenders pretenders is that Tennessee's a, a pretender in my, in my, in my opinion. And I don't think they're a bad football team. I think they're a playoff football team, but if we're talking just black and white, like, are they a Super Bowl contender or are they not? They're not in my opinion. And I feel like the Steelers cemented themselves as a, as a true contender in the AFC. And, and I think they're proving that our pick for them to win the AFC North wasn't crazy, but it's in fact probably going to be true. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think for Tennessee, I think one thing they've shown, which you have to give some level of respect for, is they find a way to be in every football game. And I think there is something about giving yourself a chance to win a football game, which um, is really important. I mean, they make that 45-yard field goal and they go to overtime, right? And depending on the coin toss, you know, we saw the week prior, you win the coin toss and you give the ball to Derrick Henry three times you may win that football game. But the Steelers coming off the Devin Bush injury and kind of navigating that, playing a team like Tennessee that runs the ball so well, you know, I thought that was really impressive for them. And especially offensively the first half, I think they held the ball for almost 20 minutes. So the time of possession, they completely killed it. They did a great job resting their defense who, because of injuries a week prior, was kind of working in some new starters. So I loved everything I saw from the Steelers, I think I like Tennessee actually a little bit more even coming off the loss because I just have such a high level of respect for the Steelers and I think they can be so dominant. But there's still something about Tennessee that although I think they're a playoff team to your point, I don't know if I have them in my window of a championship team like I look at the Steelers or the Chiefs. Um, and even I think with their struggles, I still think the Bills have a higher ceiling because I think their defense, if they get right in week 10, 11, 12, they can be really dominant because they've been so reliant Agreed. on their offense. Another game I want to talk about was the Bengals and the Browns. So we had the big matchup between Burrow and Baker. 
something about playing Cincinnati where where uh, Baker comes to play dangerous. You know, OBJ gets injured uh, the second play of the game, and I think after that, Baker only had one incompletion. So, does this say more about the Browns or the Bengals? Well. I think I sent you a clip, but I think one of the reasons why people are super critical of Baker is that he's super high when they win in games against really bad teams. And then he disappears not only on the field when they play good teams, but he disappears in the media. He disappears on social media. Like he was dancing after that game. And it's like, I'm not saying you can't celebrate, but I think what's super important in a quarterback is somebody that's even keel. Like he doesn't get too high. Like he understands he has awareness. He has high EQ of the situation. You beat arguably the worst defense in football. You have so many weapons offensively. You should beat the Bengals. And you literally, uh, until 11 seconds left in the game, and you throw a good pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones to win the game, you lose to the Bengals. And if you compare player person on paper, it's not even close. And so I think, like I, at least for me, you could look at Baker's game. He had five TD passes, but I think Burrow played the better game, like by far. And I think to our point, like I don't know if they're going to win four to five games like we predicted. I think like there's been a ton of games where they should have won. Like they should have won week one against the Chargers. They should have beat the Browns the first time they played them. They should have beat them this time. They tied against the Eagles. They should have won that game. I mean, they should have at least three wins right now. I feel like these losses are actually going to be better yeah, for the for sure. long term because I think they're playing close enough. They're competitive in every game. They're seeing what they have for Burrow, right? They're seeing what they have for Burrow. I think a lot of the playmakers on that team are seeing like, oh, we actually have our franchise guy, but then you're, they're still going to have a good pick in this draft, right? So they can get another tackle or they can load up on the defense side of the ball. They have a lot of money in cap space, but Burrow's been so impressive this year. I mean, he had another 400-yard game, Unreal. four total touchdowns. Their and, offensive line is you know, so although, bad. It is atrocious. Oh, it's the second worst of the Giants. I mean, the amount of time he gets to throw the football, there's it, just nothing there. I think it's been interesting to see. My Cowboys AD. would have something to say about that. They might say, hold my beer. <laughs> That is true. I saw a meme where it was like Danny Dimes is the problem playing, I think, Washington. And then there's a play where no one on the offensive line is blocking and there's like eight guys rushing to him. I saw um, that. (laughs) I think them getting A.J. Green involved has been interesting because it looked like there was a game where he almost demanded a trade on the sideline. Like there's this virtual clip going. (laughs) It looked like he was saying, trade me. And since then, he's had like 10 targets a game. But he's an explosive playmaker for them. He's a veteran on that team, so Andy, for, so not Andy Dalton. Um, Joe Burrow to get him involved has been good to see. But another young quarterback, Justin Herbert, gets his first win, puts up 39 points for the Jaguars. I did not think he would be this good this early. And I know it's only been a handful of starts, so I hate to be that guy, but he looks really, really good. What are your thoughts on him so far this season? Yeah, I, I think even with, with Burrow, he, I've always been super critical of people like jumping on the bandwagon too early. And so I can't do that myself. Right. But the eye test, when I'm watching the games, when I'm watching these guys play, there's a confidence that exudes from them. They, neither of them get rattled. Like even, even though the Jaguars are not a very good football team, that was a hard fought game. Like just like Herbert could have folded in that game easily because they kept scoring you know, every time that the Chargers answered, the Jacksonville Jaguars answered, it wasn't until D.D. Westbrook fumbled on that kickoff return where it really turned the game because it was tied at that point. And that's what I love to see. Like, I want to see a quarterback that's going to fight. He's not going to hang his head because they're in a shootout, right? Like, you learn a lot from your not only your team, but your quarterback, let alone a rookie, in those types of scenarios. And so I've been super impressed by Herbert. I've been super impressed by Burrow. I just think Herbert has more upside because of his physical tools than Burrow. Like I've said, I think Burrow can be like a top 10 quarterback in the NFL, maybe on like the absolute highest he squeaks into like eight. But, and again, that's a, that's great. Like who's not going to take it? Like, I think Dak's a top 10 quarterback right now. And I don't think he can get past, like, I don't, he might get into nine or eight, but it's not, I don't ever see Dak getting into three or four. And there's nothing wrong with that. You could win a Super Bowl with that guy. But Herbert, to me, because, I mean, the guy rushed for, I think, 60-plus yards yesterday, throws for 300-plus, 
throws three TDs, rushes for one. There's he is what you want in a modern day quarterback. Big, smart, strong arm. I mean, the throws he's made, he's he's a really good deep ball thrower. Like the accuracy on his deep balls are absurd. His downfield accuracy has been so impressive. Because he had the arm at Oregon, but consistently he wasn't hitting the windows. And you know, I realized they, they don't. Oregon didn't have the same level of talent they had offensively when Marcus Mariota was playing, right? But they still recruit really, really. They well. also had like and three offensive coordinators when he was there, though. That's where I think a lot of people don't talk about. No, hundred percent. And even though he has way more talent with the Chargers, you're still playing more elite players on the defensive side of the ball. And so hypothetically, you're still going to have smaller windows. And so his ability to consistently hit, hit the deep ball is really, really impressive from a guy who, to your point, he has a new offensive coordinator now being in the NFL, but he's only played a handful of games under. He still had very limited amount of work in the offseason, not being the starter, right, week one. And so, no, I think he's been absolutely impressive. I mean, 27 for 43. 347 through the air and then 66 on the ground that's what you want from your franchise quarterback and it's, it's been really impressive you still think anthony lynn there's a reason tyrod taylor's their starting quarterback or was do you think he still has that reason or there's a reason tyrod's a starting quarterback now nobody from the outside world has any idea what that is <laughs> but there's a reason i feel that i think tyrod's a really nice guy um and i think he's a good locker room guy but when you see justin have that start you just can't go back. You spent what was he the fifth pick or the seventh pick? You know, top sixth, 10, the sixth, sixth pick, right? So you're going sixth pick for a franchise quarterback, right? You want your guy, your heir replacement to Philip Rivers. Everyone besides Anthony Lynn knew uh, knew who the quarterback was there. So another quarterback that we love, we've both talked about, is Matthew Stafford. He's just been in Detroit for a really long time, his entire career, and they squeaked one out yesterday against the Falcons. I, I don't if. Like I, it's tough being a Cowboys fan because there's always so much expectation and we never seem to live up to that expectation. And I also have to deal with everybody else hating the Cowboys, like on a weekly basis. Stephen A literally every week does like an Instagram live or some sort of a video laughing about how the Cowboys lost. I was dying at yesterday's when he was playing We Dumb Boys. <laughs> he's, he's a savage. Um, but I... He's from New York oh, and he's a Steelers man. fan, so I'm not really sure, like, how's that bandwagon taste? But anyway, um, so, but being, I think being a Lions fan or a Falcons fan, but more so the Falcons, has got to be... I got a follow-up question on that. So, what's worse, to be like a Lions and Falcons fan, right, and you think, hey, if everything goes right, we have a shot of being, you know, making the playoffs... Or like being a Jacksonville Jaguars fan or a Jets fan where you know week one you have no chance of winning more than six games. Like what's worse, like realizing there's no point to watch any game because we know we're going to lose almost all of them by 14 plus? Or is it, hey, I think we're going to win a game because we score with 50 seconds left to a team with no timeouts and they have to drive the ball 80 plus yards down the field and make a touchdown we have a 96% chance to win the football game. We also had a 28 to 3 lead in the Super Bowl, and we can't win any of these games. What's worse? I, I think that, and a lot of people don't know this stat, but the, the Detroit Lions, I think they rank like top three in the NFL this just this season alone, but they have over the last four to five years where they've lost, they've had like double digit leads, I think, to, point yeah, to start the game, and they've lost. And so the, the Falcons one is more glaring because it's always at the very end of the game. So that's like what people remember. So people don't really remember like a 10 point lead in the first quarter. They're going to remember you losing the game at the very end of regulation. So I think both are bad, but I think due to the fact that it's at the end of the game and you remember the 28 to three Super Bowl, it's got to be tough to be a Falcons fan right now, especially because they have a lot of talent on paper, at least on the offensive side of the ball. Todd Gurley, Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones. They go out and get Hayden, Hayden Hurst in the offseason. So it's not like there's a lack of talent. They, I don't know what it is. Um, but to see Matt Stafford win that game, he's been really clutch in his career. Like if you go back and look at his stats and his game-winning drives, he's he's really been a clutch quarterback. And um, they, I think they're a really good football team. They're, I think that they 
they really should be four and two. If DeAndre Swift catches that ball at the end of regulation in week one against the Bears, they're four and two right now. And I think people view them a lot differently. So really happy for the guy. And um, but I think it's tough being a, a fan of the Lions or the Falcons. But I think I would go I would give the nod to the Falcons for sure. Do we need to talk about the uh the Cowboys and Patriots game or should we just should we just skip those? I mean, I guess we have to mention the past game a little bit. Um, after last week's loss, that's kind of how I felt we were going to be a, a nine and six team based upon, I think Cam Newton shown, and he it was glaring on Sunday that he has a really high ceiling, but he also has a really low floor, but nine for 15 for 98 yards and three picks. It just uh, doesn't get it done, man. Like my, watching that football game, I had one thing go through my mind, and I, I I wanted to be a reporter, and I wanted to ask Bill, is replacing Brady harder than you thought? Well, I think that first and foremost, I at least saw some some emotional intelligence from Bill Belichick when he walked over to Cam, and he basically, in a nice way, like you could tell, like you couldn't see what he said. But he like tapped his leg and said, basically, hey, like I'm pulling you. I'm putting Jared Stidham in. And at that point, it was just because the game was out of reach. There's no reason to keep him in. And he just hadn't played well. So he was moving on. So I was like, wow, Bill's grown up a little bit because he definitely wouldn't have handled Tom that way. And so, you know, I tip my hat to Bill because I don't I, I really don't feel like he has any sympathetic like bone in his body. Um, so that was nice to see. But when I'm when I'm when I'm looking at this whole scenario and watching this success, Tommy's having it 43 in a brand new city with a brand new offense, brand new weapons, shortened off season. I, I just what what other what other excuse can people come up with that Tom's done? Like you guys have been saying it for a decade. So what is it that he does? Like even after week one, when they when the Bucks lost to the Saints, people were like, oh, yeah, this isn't going to work. And they should have beaten. They should have beaten the Bears. They, I mean, this team should be six and one right now. So they're both of our picks to not only win the NFC South. That's that's not even a question. But they're both of our picks to, to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. And as I said on our show, this team was going to get better every single week. The more time Tommy got with these weapons, the more time Tommy got in the system, he was only going to get better. He wasn't going to get worse. And then on top of it, you got the defense playing this way. Oh, no, Devin White last, I think yesterday, he had 11 tackles, forced fumble, three sacks, super explosive. Because that Raider offense, like, they've been a big play offense this whole year. Their defense has been the yeah, question for sure. mark. And then, That's a really good football team they beat. No, for sure. And then I think the one thing I wanted Tommy to take from Drew Brees was the passing touchdown record. And I think it's going to go back and forth. But I will say it looks like the Bucks' offense is vertically more explosive than the Saints, right? And so I think there's a good chance with all the weapons. I mean, they didn't have O.J. Howard, who's missing the whole season with the torn Achilles. But besides that, it's the first time where he's had pretty much all of his weapons. So Gronk was out there. You had Mike Evans out there. You had Chris Godwin, right? So he had everyone at his disposal. It's been nice to see him and Gronk finally get that connection back. I guess to Arian's point, he's more than a blocking tight end. Um, he can still go out there and, and affect the game in, uh, in the passing game. So they look so dominant. I mean, it's one thing to win, but to win the way they won against, to your point, a really good football team was really impressive. It looks like they're going to start getting on a roll. Another team that won big – the Chiefs 43 to 16 over the Broncos, but it wasn't their traditional game. Patrick Mahomes only threw for 200 yards, one touchdowns, but their special teams played really well. They got a score from their defense. The Chiefs have been weird this year because they haven't been as big play dominant, right? Tyreek Hill statistically is having a much quieter year. Travis Kelsey, I think, has been a little less explosive, but I mean, they're winning football games. Do you think? Are they sneaking up on people? It sounds crazy because they're the Super Bowl champions, but I feel like with everything Tampa did, you have the Steelers looking dominant, the Packers have been really good. Are the Chiefs sneaking up on people, or are there just other storylines with Brady going to Tampa that are, are taking some of the attention away from them? I think it's two things. One, when you see stuff over and over again, it just becomes normal to you. So I think just from that human element, the, we know the Chiefs are great. We know they're at any time they can be explosive. They have a lot of weapons. You add Le'Veon Bell. So it's just there's really no surprise with them anymore. I think the the additional thing for me is that teams have been playing too high safeties. They're not giving up the big play, right? They're like, if you're gonna beat us, 
Mahomes is going to have to like dink and dunk, like dissect us, you know, hit Tyreek Hill over the middle on a crossing route, hit, you know, uh, Travis Kelsey over the middle on a, on an option route and just march down the field, run the ball with Clyde Edwards Alaire, who has looked really good this year, man. I, I really feel like, you know, typically offensive rookie of the year goes to quarterbacks because the position is so hard to play. And so if a rookie comes in and plays well, typically they're going to give the nod to that guy, but I think he needs to be in the conversation. I mean, he's had back to back really, really great weeks and, you know, he's made, I feel like he's made Kansas city fans forget about Kareem hunt. Not that they necessarily were thinking about him, but you know, he obviously led the league in rushing his rookie year. And so after the whole scandal gets released, they didn't really have like a true number one running back. And so he, he's really been a great fit. Um, it shows that their front office and Andy Reid, they really know how to evaluate players that are going to fit their system. So super happy for the kid. And uh, But those are the two big things for me. Le'Veon Bell had his uh, – he tied his longest I rush. I did see that. For 16 yards that he had with the Jets in his whole tenure. I thought that was pretty funny. First rush, 16 yards, which was the longest he had in his tenure with the Jets. So I think he's happy to be in Kansas City. So I actually want to flip a question back to you. The Packers dominated yesterday, but I, you know, I felt a little concerned after the Tampa loss. I wasn't completely jumping ship because any team throughout the season can have one bad loss. It, you remember the year you guys lost to Kansas City. It was like really bad. I think it was on a Monday night, and everybody was like, the, Pat, the Pats are done. The dynasty's over. Tom's done. And I think you guys won the Super Bowl that year. And or might have gone to the Super Bowl. I can't remember off the top of my head. But nonetheless, you guys weren't done. So I don't I don't necessarily We've been doing a lot. Of, I, I, I get the uh, I I get how you yeah. get confused. So um so the Packers did dominate, but they beat the Texans. So how do you feel about this Packers team? Do you do, you know because they beat up on on you know bad to subpar teams and then when they play an elite team like the Bucks, they disappear. Do you feel confident about them, you know, the rest of the season? And then do you feel like they're actually a team that could contend in the NFC? Yeah, I think one of the things that was impressive was Aaron Jones in at play last night, right? And he's so good in their offense. He's not, in, in my opinion, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Todd Gurley. And this isn't a knock at Todd Gurley. Even when Todd Gurley was having yeah. great years with the Rams before he was having the knee issues, I thought so much of it was the zone running scheme that Sean McVay brought over really utilized Gurley to his strengths. And I kind of feel the same way about Aaron Jones, where in that offensive system that Matt LaFleur does, it fits Aaron Jones so well. And they didn't have him, and normally him and Jamal Williams can kind of split carries. And so for all of the workload to be on Jamal, I thought it was really impressive what Aaron Rodgers did. I think the one thing that scares me about the Packers is there's times, and I get because he's so dominant, that Aaron relies too much on Devonta Adams. And it's hard to say go away from him. I mean, he had 13 grabs yesterday for 196 yards, but what do you do when teams are doubling him, right? And so I'd like to see right. the Packers be a little bit less um, dependent on him and move the ball around a little bit more. I look at the Bucks' loss kind of as something I would almost throw out because I think they were dominant the first quarter of that game. And then... Rodgers got it looked like phase which was weird to see and they were out of it but that was such a strange game to me I still think they're a contender I think they have some some limits offensively because instead of drafting a quarterback I mean sorry instead of drafting a wide receiver in the first round they drafted a quarterback right and so having Devonte as really your only playmaker on the outside I realize you have other guys that he's got the ball too but he's the only real playmaker right when you look at a team like your Cowboys, right? You have three quote unquote number one wide receivers in Cooper, Gallup, and CeeDee Lamb. The Packers definitely only have one number, like true number one wideout. And so I think that scares me, but I still feel like they're a team that can contend. The Texans, I realize if you're Deshaun Watson, you're happy because you got paid, but that situation is terrible. And now it seems like they're going to do a fire sale where they're saying, hey, Will Fuller's free because he's going to be a free agent. Um, Brandon Cooks is, is free for a trade. I know they don't have any first and second round draft picks, so it looks like they're trying to get capital for next year's draft. But what do you make of that situation for Deshaun Watson? And if you're a head coach this offseason, is this a team that you would be interested in, in applying for a position for because you have Deshaun or because there's so many holes on the defensive side of the football, on the offensive line? How do you feel coaching 
staffs are going to look at this opportunity next offseason because I don't think it's a shoe in that Romeo Cornell is going to get the job. Romeo Cornell is definitely not getting the job. But great question. I think anytime you have a true franchise quarterback, you have to be intrigued by that because it's so hard to find one. And Deshaun is a true franchise quarterback. I think he's this year because they're so bad, people are forgetting about them. But Deshaun Watson, in my opinion, is easily top 10 right now. And then maybe a lot of cases or in a lot of on a lot of people's boards, he's, you know, top seven, right? So you have to be intrigued by that. There's a lot of question marks on their offense. You you acquire a guy like David Johnson, Brandon Cooks. If you do let Will Fuller walk, you let DeAndre Hopkins go for nothing. That to me would be where if I'm a head coaching candidate, you know, I, I really have to think about player personnel and what my involvement would be. Definitely bringing in off in an offensive mind would be huge. So whether you go after a guy like Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator in Kansas City, that could be really interesting for him. You know, a lot of people are throwing around Lincoln Riley. I I don't know if he if he makes if he takes that leap to the NFL. But if he does and he, he is available, that's a guy you would definitely want to look at. So I don't know. You know, people have said Dabo Sweeney as well because of, of course, their connection to Clemson. But I'm not a big Dabo guy. Like, I think he's a great recruiter, but I don't, I think he's built for college football. He's, I don't think he's built for the NFL. Um, I 100% but, agree. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you still have to be intrigued because you have a franchise quarterback. And it's so hard to, you know, it's, you look at the Jets, it's like, I would be, I'd be intrigued by that job because I'm going to get Trevor Lawrence. But if Trevor Lawrence wasn't in this draft or Justin Fields, I'm not. I'm definitely not happy about that. So I would. I would. If I'm a. If I'm a candidate, I'm going. Hey, like, what's my involvement? What involvement are you going to give me in player personnel? Definitely don't make me the GM like you did Bill O'Brien. But I need to have some say on what we do player personnel wise. And you know, not having a first round pick, and then I know they're in some cap trouble too, is is really bad. So normally, if I were to pose a question to you and say, hey. Did you see the game last night where the undersized quarterback snuck out a win? We'd all assume Russell Wilson. What well, was Kyler Murray last night in the Arizona Cardinals? Somehow, which is really weird because normally we see Seattle come from behind. They're the team that blew a 10-point lead. The game got interesting late because with, I think, just under four minutes left in the game, the Cardinals make a field goal to cut it to seven, right? And get a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty that gives them the ball back. They end up scoring a touchdown. Seattle has a three and out. Cardinals get a last-minute field goal. And then overtime got really, really funky where Seattle gets the ball first. Um, the Cardinals get a stop. I've never seen a team ice their own kicker. So the Cardinals actually win this game twice, right? They they ice their own kicker. Then Russ probably throws his worst pick, I would say, in the last, what, three years to Isaiah Simmons, who's a great athlete from Clemson, but it was just a really bad pre-snap read, which doesn't happen from Russell. I guess we realized last night that I guess he's human, but he also, at this point in the season, has the NFL touchdown record at 22. So, like, let's not act like he's having a subpar season. He just, you know, he had basically had three bad plays, right? Three really bad reads. Two of them kind of cost them touchdowns, right? Otherwise, this game's completely over. But I think what this showed me is, like we mentioned, Seattle's defense is the biggest question mark because you still put up 30, 34 points. And Kyler Murray, you know, he was kind of all over the place last night where he was really explosive running the ball. I mean, the fact that they run the quarterback draw so much with such an undersized quarterback, I think has to be frightening long-term, but he, yep. he makes some good throws. Good like throw. his first touchdown to Hopkins was a great throw, but then he missed some really bad throws on the sideline. And so what are your thoughts on Arizona now sitting at five wins? That division, it's interesting because hypothetically with the extended wildcard play, there's a chance all four teams could make the playoffs, which would be absolutely nutty to see this year. But do you think Arizona has a chance to get in the wild card now sitting at five at two? Or do you look at a team like the Rams who play the Bears tonight and even the 49ers who have rattled off some back-to-back -back wins as teams that are probably going to push them out of contention? So when I look at this division and I see four teams that are very competitive, you have the Seahawks who defensively, they're really bad, but offensively they're elite. And then you look at the Rams They've been, I feel like, really solid this year, like really, really solid. I wouldn't quite put them in a category of like a really, really good team, but I think they're a, a good team. 
Then you have the Cardinals who pulled off a big win last night. And then you have the Niners who are depleted by injuries, but somehow Kyle Shanahan is willing that team to victory. And my guy, Jimmy G who a lot of people want to jump ship from uh, and have many times and is doing enough to win games right now. So I don't think that it, it last night's game was huge for the Niners because if the Seahawks win that game, they go to six and oh, they're going to kind of run away with the division. And there's probably a wild card team from that division, whether it be Arizona or LA, I would put, you know, LA's name in the hat in that regard. So last night's victory over the Seahawks for the Cardinals was not only big for them, but it was big for the Niners. So I feel like the Niners, if they win nine games or eight games, they should take the place of the NFC East team <laughs> that, that would <laughs> make great. the playoffs. So, you know, but it's it's a really, it's always been a tough division. I, I think they've been the best division in football for quite some time now. And I just was super impressed by, you know, the Cardinals' ability to come back in that game and stay close it shows you how bad Seattle's defense is. And really, they lose the game. Russ made three bad throws. And so um, if you if you eliminate at least one of those, they win the game. I still feel like Seattle's going to run away with that division. But maybe not run away, but I think they're they're clearly the better team, in my opinion. Um, and I still like the Rams. I, I, I wasn't high on them going into the season. But now seeing what I've seen, I'm still not. I don't think they're a contender by any stretch of the imagination. But I do feel like they're a squad that's going to get into the playoffs. And uh, I, Arizona, to me, is still super young. I know their record's really good, but I'm not a Cliff Kingsbury fan. I'm really not a Kyler fan. They, they, to me, they play backyard football. That's what it, it looks like when I watch their games. But they're winning, so um, you really can't say much um, other than you t- tape your hat to them because I don't think anybody felt like they were going to be a playoff team this year. I know a lot of people picked Kyler as a dark horse MVP, but it's going to be an interesting end of the season for the NFC West. But we got a DC inbox this week, which we're super excited about. There's actually a few questions in here, and this is from Sam Lewis Jones, at Sam Lewis Jones. So Sam, thanks for your questions. We do appreciate it. So he's, he's a Browns fan, and uh, which you know I, I have a ton of respect for Browns fans. I mean, there's been a lot of years of, of heartbreak. Yeah, so... He said, how do you think – he's talking about Baker here. How do you think he could be and do you think the Browns will appreciate Baker's upside enough to keep developing him over another season at least? Or will they consider moving on to a more reliable QB after the season, even if they make the playoffs? So I'm going to go ahead and kind of kick that to you and let you answer it. So if I'm the Browns, I don't exercise Baker's fifth-year option, right? I have next year kind of be the prove-it year for him. It looks like Mitchell I was, Trubisky situation. Yeah, it looks like I was probably off on my uh, my five wins take. I honestly felt really strongly about it, but to your point, they do have a really talented roster, and they're probably going to win eight or nine football games and make the playoffs as a wild card team. And so, I think if I'm the Browns next year for me is kind of my make it break it year for Baker. I probably draft a quarterback in the third or fourth round this year that I like and thinks has a chance to develop, and. Here's a really interesting stat to me, and this is kind of where I am on Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield, through this part of the season, has thrown 15 touchdowns. Seven have been against the Bengals. The other eight have been against their other final five opponents. Wow. And so Baker's a guy to me who is a game manager, right? He's not going to win me a football game. And you could make a case that like last night he won the football game, but you're also playing Cincinnati and your game plan against Cincinnati is going to be. I mean, it took you till eleven seconds left plan, in the right? game to beat the Bengals. So, I don't want to hear this about. Yeah, and it was it was a, it was it was a really good throw, but you're an NFL quarterback. Like that's that's your job. It's not like an all time great throw. It was a great throw. It was a good throw to a receiver that had a step on a cornerback. Like it's a, it's not as good a, a throw as the one Carson Wentz made stepping up in the pocket. That throw is absurd you know, on on Thursday night. Right, And so you made a good throw, but that's what you get paid to do. You were the first pick in the draft. So now all these people are like, oh my gosh, Baker's amazing. Well, if he's the first pick in the draft, he's your franchise quarterback. That's a throw he needs to make because that's not an elite throw. That's a starting quarterback throw, right? And so I think for Cleveland, the reality is they're going to be too good this year to get one of the top two quarterbacks in the draft this year in Lawrence and Fields. And so maybe you take a guy in the third or fourth round, I think, there's no reason to not give Baker the nod next year, especially if you win eight or nine games this year, because he's already on your contract. You spent a first round pick on him, so you have to see where it's at. But if he has the same type season next year, 
I don't think they re-sign him unless he has a more professional attitude in the locker room and he takes a team-friendly deal. I can possibly sing, sing Stefanski saying, you know, with my run-first system, he can win me enough football games. But unless he continues to mature and be a leader in the locker room, like we've seen a guy like a Dak Prescott, right, who rallies his troops, Dak's limited, but he rallies his troops. If Baker can be less me and more we-centric and he takes a team-friendly deal, I think Cleveland keeps him from that standpoint because they have so much talent on the roster, they're going to have to pay a lot of people. But if he has you know, another solid year last year because they have so much talent and he comes with this crazy number saying, hey, I want $30 million a year, I think they let him walk. So I'll admit for sure on record that I was wrong about Baker. I actually liked him coming into the NFL. I thought it was the right pick because I wasn't super high on anybody in that draft. And the reason I was high on him was because he was super accurate in college. I'm not, I've never been high on any Oklahoma prospect coming out. Sam Bradford, just those guys that put up gaudy numbers in that system with five-star recruits everywhere. They've never really panned out. You know, you're looking at Kyler Murray, wasn't high on. So I thought, okay, Baker might be the one guy that's the exception because he's so accurate and he looked the part his rookie year. And I understand the same argument, right? He did it against poor competition. And when he played good teams, he didn't show up. And it's kind of the same narrative for him. But at least my eye test was like, okay, if he can build on this, he can't stay here, but if he can build on this, He's going to be a good player in the NFL, maybe top 15 starting quarterback to maybe 12th, which is not great, but he's limited. He's six foot. He doesn't have an elite arm. Yes, he's accurate, not super mobile. I think he's a little bit more, more mobile within the pocket than people give him credit for. I think he has good pocket awareness, but turns the ball over a ton, makes poor decisions. Over the last you know year and a half, he's really looked down receivers. I think getting OBJ has been a negative for him because he's in his mind forcing the ball to him. You know, you brought up that great stat with him being out, how he only had one incompletion after after uh, OBJ went down with the injury. No, I 100% agree. That's been the weird dynamic where normally you get a star receiver, it helps your quarterback. I feel like Baker, because OBJ is so demonstrative on the field when he doesn't get the ball thrown his way Baker almost feels like regardless of the play OBJ has to be my first read and then after that I go through my progressions and I think that's actually hurt Baker's um, maturation as a quarterback yeah no doubt so so going back to it you know he's just a lot of what I saw his rookie year in my opinion he's regressed and their team's gotten better like they're better they were better last year and they're they're definitely better this year than they have been in 15 years, but they were better. They're better now than they were his rookie year. So I was like, well, if he gets better, the personnel, the players around him are getting better. There's no reason why he shouldn't get better. And he's not. And he started that game really poorly. His first pass of the game was an interception. So look, I don't want to just be super negative because look, he did win the game down the stretch against a bad team. They're five and two. So as a Browns fan, you're probably super optimistic, but I, I just don't see how, because Stefanski didn't draft Baker, he doesn't feel the same commitment to him as he would if he had drafted him. So I think that's something that I've said on the show that we definitely need to keep our eye on because had he drafted Baker, I think we would see maybe one to two more seasons where Baker would get a chance. But we're in year three. So if you're talking another two years, now you're into year five, Stefanski, his job as a head coach is to put his team in best in the best position to win games. He has to win games. That's how he keeps his job. So yes, you need to be loyal to your players, but at the end of the day, you being loyal to your players and losing is not going to keep your job. So Stefanski has to do what's best for the team. And I think going forward, maybe Baker gets one more year. I think to your point was great. I don't think they pick up the fifth year. This might be next year might be his last year. And then maybe they draft a quarterback. Um, I don't know if there's really anybody deep in this quarterback class that they could trade up to get, but I don't. I just don't see how he's their quarterback long term because this team is so good, player personnel wise. Their roster is so deep, they're so strong. I don't know why you would risk not being a playoff team just because you want to hold on to Baker Mayfield and what he might become. I'm happy for the Browns. I'm happy for their fans. It's been a long time since they've been relevant, and um, I think really the bigger question is: Do you keep OBJ? I trade him because I I mean it's tough now because if that knee injury is serious, you're looking at a guy that's been hurt for the large part of the past three seasons, right? And so 
if you can still, I think he's so talented that you can still get value. Like there's a, like a team like Philadelphia, who's historically been willing to give draft capital for cornerbacks and position players. In my mind, they're a team that gives two twos or a late one for OBJ. So if I'm Cleveland, I don't think you really need OBJ to be successful, right? I think you have so many options offensively, especially when Nick Chubb gets back and you're a run first team, you don't need OBJ. So if you can get a first or a second round pick, continue to build on the offensive line or get someone to pair with Miles Garrett on the other end, like they should have with clowning the offseason. Now, if Baker can just game manage, you can still win a Super Bowl. I mean, our boy Trent Dilfer, not our boy. Um, <laughs> The way he flipped on Tom Brady after he won six rings is like all-time like hot take, all-time hyped. No, it's just like all-time bandwagon. I mean, for his first four rings, Brady was simply a game manager, and and for Trent Dilfer to call anybody a game manager, well, I'm like, saying hot take because of on, what bro. he did say previously. That was his yeah, hot take because he's a game yeah. manager, and now he's like, oh, he's a goat. It's not even close. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> but I will say the one thing I love about Trent Dilfer now, and it's been hard because he really knows the game. Though aside, he breaks. He breaks down games so well. Whenever he's on someone's podcast or on SportsCenter, he breaks down the tape. But I had to have my boy Tommy's back on, on that one. Yeah, I think as a Browns fan, you look at OBJ and you need to just get over the fact that you have this relationship to him or the brand, not really him as a player, but as a brand, and just let that go because you he's not making a difference. It's just it's a season and a half case study. It's not working. And Jarvis Landry, to me, has been more productive and he's not a cancer in the locker room. So that's our take on that. And so again, we thank you for the question, Sam. We so appreciate it, Um, but that's going to wrap things up for episode 49 of the DNC podcast. Be sure to rate review and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DNC podcast. Engage with us on there. Be sure to drop some DMS and different questions and topics you want us to cover just like we did today. And uh, we hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you guys Friday.